welcome to Spiritual Wanderlust, where we explore our interior life in search of the sacred. Many of us will travel the whole world to find ourselves, but here we'll follow those longings within to our spiritual and emotional landscapes. In each episode, we'll talk with inspiring guests, contemplative teachers, embodiment experts, neuropsychologists, and mystics. With a blend of ancient wisdom and modern science, along with a healthy dash of mischief, we'll deep dive into divine intimacy and what it means to be whole. I'm your host, Kelly Deutsch. Hi everyone, Kelly Deutsch here and welcome back to Spiritual Wanderlust. Uh, today I have joining me Tamisha Tyler and Tamisha is a theologian, an artist, and a lover of people. She's the co-executive director of Art, Religion, Culture, also called ARC, and is passionate about African-American culture and literature. She's also a PhD candidate studying theology, culture, and ethics. And today we're here to talk about theopoetics and the intersection of theology, art, and embodiment. And I'm really excited to pick your brain, Tamisha. So welcome, we're glad to have you. Thank you, yeah. glad to be here. Wonderful, to get us started, Tamisha, would you share a bit about how you came to be so passionate about this intersection of theology and art? You know, were you always passionate about both? Yes and no, I think, um... I always say that I started out with the, the spirituality of my mom hmm. and the things that she taught me. She always tells me this story growing up about how when she was pregnant with me, she was at a revival. She comes from a Pentecostal background and that she received the gift of the Holy Spirit while during her pregnancy. And for, for people of Pentecostal tradition, it's often followed by um, evidence of speaking in tongues. And the revivalist, the pastor who was leading the service that night, gave her a prophetic word, but also gave me a word in the womb. And the worm was that uh, the words, knowledge and wisdom, all the days of her life were written across my forehead. And so that was just the formative story growing up for me. Um, so it was really interesting because it was both grounded in a deeply spiritual experience, but it was about this sense of like wanting to seek knowledge, you know? Hmm. And so I think that that was the beginning seeds of shaping kind of my trajectory. I was always a deeply uh, spiritual kid. I would always want to go to the church. And even if my family wasn't going at the time, like my mom would send me off with like the neighbor, um, the, the neighbor Christian who would always go, you know? Um, but I was also deeply creative. So I began writing poetry in elementary school and so poetry especially, and other forms of art uh, were deeply, was a way that I learned to articulate like who I was, mm. but I was also grounded in a deeply kind of spiritual sense. So I always kind of embodied the intersection before I knew how to name it. Mm. Um, I didn't really learn about the word theology until college. And I think when I heard it, it made the most sense because it was like, well, I love God and spiritual things and I love school so it just makes sense that there's a thing that I can do both I'll just do that um and initially I, I put it on the back burner because I was really discouraged when I first discovered theology because I was a woman and so I was discouraged by a lot of the men in the church and I just kind of served in ministry and then it wasn't until wow I want to say quite a few years almost a decade later that I actually that idea came back up for me. And I was like, why did I forget about this? And I just decided to pursue it. So it's, theology especially has always been um, kind of there. I think the arts just comes from me being an artist, um, me having a deep care for artists and for creatives and, and knowing and understanding that an artist can give you more than just the product that they create the way that, they, that an artist sees the world, um, the way that an artist kind of lives in and feels the world. Um, it's something that I think is deeply embedded in us and we often need help tapping into. And I think artists um, and the way that they live their lives and the way that they help us to enter into those spaces are absolutely necessary. And so I always knew 
that one, that was something that I would advocate for, but two, that that also required a deep caring for artists, right? You're in a very vulnerable space when you do that. And so who cares for you as you're caring for others in that way? And so that was just kind of a, I won't say I fell into it, but it just, it was who I am. And so I just kind of leaned into that. Hmm. And so that's how I ended up here. Yeah, beautiful. How did, I'm curious what changed um, as you were speaking about theology and how you felt discouraged, especially by men in the church. How, how did that change so that you found, you know, this courage to follow the calling that, that you felt drawing you? Uh, I just shared this with a group of students um, like a week or two ago. And it's funny because I, I, it's, I said what changed was uh, I told them, I said, I prayed a prayer that I don't recommend anyone to ever pray. And that's the, you know, Lord, will you close every door that's not like you and open up the one door, you know, that super naive prayer that, you know, thinks that life works that way. But um, after I prayed that prayer, it was kind of like my life kind of fell apart. <laughs> so uh, the job that I have been working at, the company went out of business. Um, so I was losing my job. I had this huge falling out with my best friend. I already had these questions um, about God and community and church that was not jiving well with the church that I was at. Um, I'd been there for a while and they had questions, but I hadn't like, I think that there was something that kind of jolted me to go, wait, what am I doing? What are we doing? Mm. And you know, once you start asking too many questions and it, it can become a real problem in some places. And so I was just in this, it was almost like everything in my life, including me had been tossed up. And at the same time, there were actually quite a few people who were asking me specifically when I was going to graduate school. And these were people who didn't know I had an undergraduate degree. Mm. And so my friend was like, I mean, if they're asking me that specifically. Um, and so, yeah, I, I dodged it for a bit. I was like, maybe I'll go and get a degree in screenwriting. And then I like tried to write a screenplay and I was like, no, that's definitely a poet. Okay, uh, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> And, and, and then somebody just said, hey, have you ever thought about seminary? And I was like, oh. And then all of that just came flooding back. Mm. And it was actually a pretty quick decision in retrospect. I, um, three days after I lost my job, I Googled seminaries in California, clicked the first one. They had an arts program. I applied three days after. And then a month after I... I, after my last day at work, I was in class. Wow. So it was, it felt almost immediate. Mm -hmm. um, but it set me up for the rest is history, I guess, as they say. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I know I personally resonate with that trajectory of life falling apart and then something beautiful being reborn. And I think a lot of our listeners do too, because mm -hmm. um, yeah, spiritual wanderlust doesn't... Um, really fit well within a whole lot of structures. <laughs> a lot of people end up feeling like they're off-roading and um, that can be a really intimidating place, especially when we've been taught to stay inside of our white picket fences. Um, right, but yeah. I mean, that's just it, right? Like all of the fenced places and the roaded paved places were once someone else's wanderlust, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And we're kind of just following uh the path that they found yeah right and i don't think that there's anything wrong with that i think that there's something extremely beautiful in that just as much as it is beautiful to also be the off-roader mm. and the wanderluster that goes off and creates spaces for other people to then eventually maybe walk on and find absolutely which is awesome yeah i was just um I'm working on a um, program about women mystics, and mm. I was just reflecting on how so many of the women mystics were such rebels, were so audacious in their day, um, and, you know, would tell the Pope what was what, and, you know, all sorts of really bold things, especially for, you know, being a woman in the Middle Ages, many of them. But looking at four that I was looking at, Hildegard of Bingen, Catherine of Siena, Teresa of Avila, and Therese of Lisieux, those four became like doctors of the church in the Catholic church, which means like we hold you up above all saints as influencing our spirituality, but how in order to get there, they had to kind of 
push outside of those normal <laughs> fences, mm -hmm. what was accepted for them and what they were allowed to say or not allowed to say. And, you know, just all that systemic fencing that we put ourselves in. So I thought that was kind of an interesting example of, of that. They, yeah. they pushed outside, but now yeah, it's something I mean, that's embraced and lauded. I think there's so many of our saints and our leaders, you know, especially Jesus, right? That, that had to push outside and were never received What's the saying? Like you're never, you're not received in your hometown or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that, that also relates to time, right? Mm. Like we look at a lot of people, we think they're beyond their time. And it's like, no, they had to push through something, right? So that we can say that that is our time, right? Our time that we think, oh, of course they should have thought that. We inherited from their rebellion, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think we forget that a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. So you had these kind of two streams of theology and art, which maybe were really one after all. But mm -hmm. I'm curious um, how you would define for those who are listening what theopoetics is, because those things intersect in theopoetics, but a lot of people haven't heard of it or think that it sounds like a cool term, but don't quite understand what it is. So how would yeah. you define it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um... The ARC website, and just as a clarification, I no longer am the executive oh, director okay. for ARC. Um, okay. Just in case somebody is listening to this timeline and they're like, when did you do this video? But, um, you know, transitions happen. Sure, but, absolutely. Um, I still think the the, on the website um, has a really great kind of collective definition that I think was written um, about five or six years ago by some of the leaders. Um, in a paraphrase, it says that um, theopoetics is a art as a form or a uh, style or a positive concern for the intersection of ref religious reflection or spirituality, right? The intersection of that and aesthetics and the arts. So it's a form style or concern for those two intersections with the focus on community, mm. material change, and an emphasis on embodiment. Mm. That's and a lot. so, yeah, there's a lot going on there. So. Um, what I often say to people is that um, it's more than just writing poems about God or thinking through how art can be spiritual. It's about living in the poesis, the meaning making of life, right? What does it mean that we live into this way of being, this style or this form of being that takes seriously community and embodiment and material change and the arts. Those things are central to the way in which we live. What does that mean for us as people of faith? Mm. Or what does that mean for the way we think about religion or spirituality if mm. those things are centered? Um, and I think it helps us to point to a certain way in which people have always lived, right? So, 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 so theopoetics is not another way of doing theology, right? It's not, it's not like another theology. It just points to and acknowledges the ways in which we already live and says, that is a point where you meet God too. Um, I think a lot of this is to push back against the way in which um, we have created a pedestal out of certain forms of theology, like the systematic theology, right? For as an example, we have, we have created an idol out of the intellectual enterprise of theology. And this reminds us that, you know, the embeddedness and the embodiedness of how we live in, into the world and how we make meaning of what is happening in the world um, isn't only an intellectual journey, hmm. right? It is the ways in which our bodies are implicated, right? Our community is implicated, right? It is the ways in which we learn to navigate change. Um, and I think theopoetics, takes that seriously and it says we are using the arts exclusively like explicitly not exclusively um as a way to understand that and i think even more broadly for um the field of theology and the arts and this is this is my thing that i say um a lot of the ways in which we've engaged the arts historically has been looking at what i call the artistic product as a metaphor let's look at how this painting tells us about it's like metaphorically used to right and that's not inherently bad it's just that we've we've kind of stopped there 
right? Mm. We think formally about theology and the arts. And I'm arguing in a sense that we should push into thinking through what I call understanding the artistic or the creative process as a spiritual epistemology by mm. like, or a way of knowing. And, yeah, and, and tell me more about that. One, one really great example is I was, I was at a worship cohort in Michigan and I made a new friend and he is Canadian born and he is black and indigenous. And so we'd had some conversations and we were at one of the final sessions of this cohort and we were sitting together and we we're listening to the speaker and he was beating. He's making a necklace, he's beating. And I was just watching him and it was just, just a really beautiful thing to watch. And I said, wow, that's really beautiful. And he begins to explain that each bead has a different meaning, right? And that the thread has a specific meaning and that the act of beading this thread with this particular bead meant a certain invocation of a particular memory, right? Mm -hmm. um, and the necklace then was a reminder of that process. And so I had talked about, you know, our spiritual epistemologies and, our, and arts the day before. And I said, this is exactly what I mean when I say artistic process as a way of knowing. Like mm -hmm. the process that you are doing and that your, your tribe and your culture has like taught you how to remember, that process is doing something, right? It's a certain type of knowing that you have that isn't solely only linked to the product right? Mm -hmm. The product is a reminder of, of the doing. And I think in a lot of time, a lot of ways, we focus so much on the end product that we miss that the process has been telling us something all along. Mm -hmm. And the product is just a remind, can, can just be a reminder of that process. Now, this is different if you are um, a, a reader or a seer of a particular type of art, right? Like you're having a different conversation with it because you didn't make that art piece. But I think that for, for people who don't do a particular art form or don't feel like, you know, their art is not their vocation, like the practicing of certain arts um, helps us to learn. One of the ways I really love this is, um, have you ever seen what they call a Buddha board? I don't think so. It's, it's like a canvas and it's blank and you only use water and has a little paintbrush and you can paint on it and it makes all the different shapes and then because it's water it fades away mm -hmm. and it's a it's meant to be a meditative practice of letting go and i think that is also just another beautiful example of being able to create something and then watching it fade and then letting that process the witnessing and the participating of that process represents something that maybe you need to let go, mm. right? Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that there are ways that we can lean into these practices, right? Uh, practices and rituals that we may already do in our lives, right? Um, there's a reason why so many people sat down to watch Netflix or to do something during the pandemic, right? There's a reason why so many people lean into the arts during the pandemic it fed something in people right people recognized that they needed it and they recognized that something about creativity and the arts was the only thing that can fill it mm. and necessarily work more right they were in their community they're you know more aware of their body right they're more aware of the arts and so it's kind of like when we're in a certain level of pressure we recognize that these things are necessary but when things seem to be thriving um we somehow translate that those things are secondary now. Um, and so I, I think, and I hope that a space like Theopoetics can remind us that those things are central and that those things are important for us to understand who we are spiritually in addition to um, emotionally and like in ways that we're living together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a lot there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I. Um... First of all, I resonate with that um, idolization of, of the intellect, you know, and I think anyone who's alive today is kind of a product of, of the enlightenment or at least is influenced by the enlightenment somehow where we're just so focused upon the intellect, our heads, if it's rational, can I argue it? Um, can I be logical about it instead of looking at 
um, these other expressions. And it makes me think of um, in my theology undergrad talking about the difference between, you know, some of these. Um, oh, sorry, did we blip out there? You froze a little bit okay. right after you said, can I be logical? Oh, sure. And I didn't know if it was you or me. Yeah, whichever. We can we'll <laughs> figure it out. Um, I was just thinking of how um, how central it is the day-to-day -day life and how back in one of my theology classes in my undergrad, we would talk about the difference between like a theologian or a scholar who, you know, studied all of, you know, the systematic, you know, breakdowns and definitions and explorations and philosophies and sometimes eventually made it to this kind of open-minded, wide open space um, and how that was almost painstaking, you know, over decades, this big process, yet how the simple farmer in the field knew those same wide open spaces interiorly just by sowing seed, you know, and reaping the harvest. And we were like, which one, which one's wiser? Like, I don't know, <laughs> like mm. they're different approaches, but there is something that feels so, um, relieving to think like oh we don't have to go the route of the intellect in order to have like a profound spirituality or to connect with god like you don't right. have to use the path laid out for you like this is how you must believe <laughs> right you don't and i think that that's part of the like the focus on embodiment for me because i think that you know your brain is a part of your body <laughs> right like the way your mind works like it is a part of your body. And I think that we forget, right? Damn enlightenment. You know, I think it, we forget that that is like, we think that it's a thing that's so completely separate. And it's like, it's a different thing, yes. Is it separate from you totally? No, mm. right? Um, and I think that there's a, a maybe a healthy dose of integration that we need to come back to so that we can understand how those things can work together. Because I think that like, yeah, both of those, both of those trajectories to get to that place may be necessary. Maybe the person who ended up being the scholar didn't, in the context that they were in, didn't have a space to understand the sowing of a seed, right? Mm. They didn't, they didn't have the space to really get their hands dirty, as it were, in that way. Mm -hmm. And because their, you know, their gifts, their this, their whatever, lend it to more of an intellectual thing they went and they read the books and they did the things and then they're like, oh, I came to this place. I think that that's beautiful. But I think the problem is, is that we honor that person over and over. Like we, we put that, we put that path on a pedestal to the point that we downplay someone like the farmer mm -hmm. who can say, I went out and I sold a seed and this is what I discovered. And I think this is teaching me something about how to be more human in the world and about what does it mean to be a person of faith? And then they just share that. And then people go, yeah, that mm -hmm. reminds me of da, da, da. And, and the nerd, me, right, can be like, that reminds me of this one book I read about the thing. And he's like, oh, you know, that reminds me of that one crop we had where there is gener generative space for us to be able to do that, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that <laughs> a lot of the times, we forget that as a scholar and, and you know, a person who is completing a PhD, I think that we forget that I do this because I wanna teach, mm. right? Part of that is I am going and learning and, and reading all these books and doing all these things. So then I have tools to share with my students as they're on their journey. And then I can say, that was a really great insight there's this, you should read this, or I watched this movie, or I did this thing, to give you also tools and to help you, right? To be the guide as you're on your own intellectual, like discovery about something. Mm -hmm. that's, that's the vocation. And I think it's a, it's a beautiful thing. And I think that there are certain ways in which I am preparing to be in that space, right? Just like a farmer has to get up at God knows what time in the morning to practice and do that. So then they can be like the guy but like to nurture the crop to their point of growth right mm. it's different trajectories mm -hmm. but i think that there is something to be gained in both definitely yeah yeah as you were speaking i was 
thinking about how um, the art for the farmer is very similar. You know, it's like he, he comes out with this end product, you know, like here is whatever, a pumpkin, <laughs> you know, and we just ate a delicious pumpkin pie. But to take the time to enjoy that as a spiritual act and look at all the things it took for you to get this pumpkin pie in front of you and savor it in your mouth and to think of, you know, the months of tilling the soil and of mm -hmm. watching it grow and, you know, fertilizing and eventually harvesting and then shifting it across to think of like all the people and the efforts that went into that. It, um, I have a friend who's a, a painter and she was describing to me, she described for me Jackson Pollock, like I've never heard before. He's famous, you know, for his splatter paintings. And I, I never really thought anything of them. I'm like, can't anybody splatter paint <laughs> like on a piece of canvas? You know, like I, I just didn't know. And she's like, mm -hmm. it's not, it's not the, it's not the paint itself. It's like the actions that he took. Like he was often in a harness, like flinging paint in all these different directions. It's the, like the dynamism and the movement that's in it. That's the art piece. It's not what you see hanging on the wall. Mm -hmm. And that changed so much for my perspective of art. Oh, the act is what we are holding up. It's not not simply like, wow, you make things look real pretty. <laughs> yes. and, it, and it resonates, right? Like when you look at certain pieces of especially abstract art, like it's not about making out what the thing is. It's about I can I can see the movement. I can see the emotion. You have articulated it in a way that I can now enter into that space. Mm. And it has captivated me. Mm. And so I would like to continue to enter into that experience. That's why we purchase art, right? You look at a piece and you go, oh, it still makes me feel this. It still draws me into this, right? Yeah. Um, and so I think that the intentionality that is put into um, work like that really does translate. And I think, you know, I'm not saying that you're saying this, but I do want to also make a note to say like, we always want to be surrounded by really beautiful things too, right? It does something to us, right? The way we adorn ourselves, right? The way we adorn our spaces, right? There's some kind of calming and an energy that happens to us when we walk into a space that we feel is beautiful or, 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 or aesthetically pleasing. And, and I think that, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. That's how we're made. And, you know, I think that that is something that we can lean into right the beauty of it all um this is especially true i think in just my own cultural heritage right african americans you know black people in america have been creating these beautiful celebrations that are not without the truth of 400 years of oppression and suffering that we have been undergoing in all these different ways. But that don't mean we don't celebrate, mm. right? And we don't make beautiful things. And, you know, we don't laugh and we don't do, it's like, it's more beautiful, not because it's in spite of, and sometimes it is, but it's because it's, it doesn't always negate that beauty. Mm. Like, we learn to live with both as we are fighting against a certain injustice, right? As we are sitting in the realities of death and murder and all of these things. And I think that like, that's life, you know? Mm -hmm. And everybody deserves to be around something beautiful. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. I know, finding ways to live into that both and, I think that's a beautiful example of that. Mm -hmm. The beauty and the pain and suffering. It all exists, <laughs> coexists in this wild world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, can I ask you a question? I've been super curious about this. Um, so my background is Catholic and we have this term that we use, and I don't know if it's used in a Protestant circles as well. So you tell me, um, we talk about this term called the sacramental imagination. Is that something mm. you've heard before? Uh, 
I feel like it is something I've heard before. And now I'm kind of questioning myself because I was like, I'm wondering if I read it in, 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 a, uh, in a text that was written by a Catholic. Sure, sure. <laughs> so, well, yes. yeah, let me describe it a little bit also for our listeners here. And I'm mm -hmm. curious how that overlaps with or relates to theopoetics. So um, the sacramental imagination um, has to do obviously with this idea of the sacrament where a material thing makes a spiritual reality present, you know, so we think of the typical ones like, okay, baptism, it's not just a symbol of water, but this material thing of water makes present the symbol, the actual reality of like cleansing or making us part of God's body, etc. Um, but when you extend that to the entire world, that it's not just the seven official sacraments, but that the all of reality is sacramental, and that, you know, huckleberries and paperwork and like the homeless lady who lives by your workplace or mm -hmm. mosquitoes, you know, just like everything in existence is, is teeming with divine presence, you know, and that idea, some people call it panentheism, you know, God in all things. And, you know, that's where you get like the Flannery O'Connors or the J.R.R. Tolkien's or, mm -hmm. you know, the Gerard Manley Hopkins, where they just, you know, everything is possessed shot through with with presence and with meaning um you know and to be able to look at the world in that way that our bodies our soil our food everything makes present the divine in some way that i think also informed you know all the you know renaissance art and architecture and music and you know all those things that came about um and i'm curious if that is an element of theopoetics or if that feels like a separate thing or alongside mm. it? No, I don't think that it feels like something that is separate from that um, or even alongside. I do feel like that, that is deeply resonant with what the tenets of theopoetics entails hmm. for mm -hmm. me. Mm -hmm. um, I think because we are looking at this deep sense of like materiality, right? Uh, our own embodiment, our own ways we live in the world. And we're centering that and asking, you know, what does it mean about religion, God, spirituality now that those things are central? Like mm. those very, like that's exactly the questions that theopoetics pushes and asks, mm. right? And it, and, it, and it reminds us, remember, you're not, you're not only this, you know, there's all of this other things, right? God didn't create only you, mm -hmm. right? There's all these other things that, you know, were created. I do also want to say, I think we had talked about this either over email, um, that in my research and in looking at like the field as we know it right now um, was originally, you know, a lot about Christian renewal. I don't think that and I think that quite a few scholars may say this also. Um, I think that theopoetics is about spirituality and religious reflection in regards to those things. I don't think it's only about spirituality and Christian religious reflection. Mm. I think that there then opens up an avenue for other religions and spiritualities that center those things to go, okay, what does it mean then if the arts imagination, aesthetics, embodiment, if those things are central and integrated, what do we think about God or the beyond or deities or, or, what, or people or how we live in the world now? What changes, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so I think part of my encouragement to people who are on a spiritual walk, and I mean, it also looks at the ways in which a lot of people are deeply complicated, right? Especially now with everything going on, you'll find people who um, have a deep love, you know, for Jesus, but also are, you know, engaging in different religions or who are borrowing from different things and who are a lot more complicated than, you know, the categories that we have drawn on religion anyway. And mm -hmm. so I think that theopoetics honors that mm. as a lived reality, right? Because it starts with the body. Mm -hmm. And it starts with that experience. And so it's like, well, where do you meet God in all these areas? Mm -hmm. Where do you meet beyond in all these areas? Or maybe you don't, maybe you don't believe that there is <laughs> a beyond and you're trying to figure out, you know, what does this mean for the human condition? Mm -hmm. Right. What does this say and demand 
less demand, but in some ways, yeah, the ways we care and honor one another, mm. mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It changes about that. Um, so yeah, but yeah, I, I think that the sacramental imagination, I do not know what that was, or if you can hear that, but that was very loud. Uh, <laughs> I do not think that the sacramental imagination um, is dissonant of what a theopoetics is. I think it sits right within that. And it says that God was here. It's kind of like, you know, you write in the tree and like on the piece of paper, like you just want to know that you're known here. It's like, you know, God has done that. You know, mm. I believe that like as a Christian, like God has done that. Mm-hmm. Um, and we get to find those little pockets of, you know, God was here. And what does that mean for us? Mm, yeah. Talk to me a little bit about embodiment in your own journey with that. Like, mm. how do you feel like embodiment and that concept and how you live inside your own body has changed or developed over the years? Yeah, you know, it's... <laughs> I have had to be extremely aware of my body for most of my life, being a Black woman in America, Mm -hmm. being a plus-size Black woman in America, Mm -hmm. right? My body is always present, whether I want it to be or not. Um, Whether I have control of how it is present or I'm fighting for control of how it is present. It is, and it is very like palpably in the forefront of my mind. I think that that history, right, has deeply affected the way in which I think about God. And because the way in which I received an understanding of God came from a very particular place. It wasn't a, didn't have like a, deep spiritual otherworldly connection. It was my mom who was a single mom at the time of six children and had to figure out all the things and wasn't perfect, but lived this deep spirituality, you know, and, you know, it was us singing gospel songs, but also cleaning the house at six in the morning on a Saturday, right? It was always deeply embodied, right? Whether or not she was like, we are going to do an embodied exercise to remind our bodies that, no, she's like, get up and clean and listen to Mahalia Jackson over and over again, like <laughs> that just was life. And so yeah. bodies have always been important and present uh, for me personally. Mm. Um, I think the notion of bodies and starting with the body, one of the things that, um, and, and doing, uh, Dr. Melanie May says, doing theology in the body, right? Mm. And not just about the body, right? Yeah. Um, I think it's a lifelong practice in which you kind of lean into, and I even lean into this with some of my art. There's a, uh, what is the name of that painting? It's probably called The Resurrection because it's a painting of the resurrection. (laughs) It's at a Duomo in Orvieto Mm. and it's a Frisco, Fresco, Mm -hmm. Frisco. I always say words wrong. Um, And I can't remember the artist, but I remember seeing it in Orvieto and it's this huge, beautiful painting. And it's of the resurrection. So people are coming out of the ground and they're, you know, mm-hmm. being, you know, lifted up into God. And at the time, the artist thought that, you know, everybody who was resurrected will be resurrected at 33. They were all, you know, extremely fit and they were all white. And I remember coming back and writing an extremely short poem mm-hmm. about that, which was a response to what I saw in that painting. And it was entitled, When I Rise. And I think I can't remember it because I don't actually remember if I wrote it down. Mm, yeah. <laughs> um, and it says, it goes, when I rise from the dead, I will still be fat. My teeth will still be crooked, hair kinked, skin black. And it was just a way of writing myself into that narrative. Now, maybe that's all the people that that artist was surrounded by. I doubt it, but you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like it was, it was in a sense of, if I die and I rise from the dead, I think wholeness and healing when going to Jesus is more about what size I am or what skin color I am or how I look. I think that Jesus is in, in God knows exactly what size I am, what skin color I am and how I look. I think if anybody knows, Right? Yeah. 
So I'm not going to become something I'm not when I rise. And if I have to become something I'm not, is that a place I want to go? Mm. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And I think Absolutely. that that really helped me to think through both theology, the arts, and my own embodiment and writing myself as I am right now into that story. Yeah. Mm. And so I think that that's been like my own trajectory in that. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Would you like to share any other poems with us? I know, I know you've been writing oh. since you were a kid and I, <laughs> I love that kind of um, expression of the soul because I feel like in spiritual things, we so frequently are dancing around the ineffable. Mm. And so art and poetry and music and movement and all the things that Theopoetics is about sometimes seems to do a more adequate job in saying the things that we can't say. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think, you know, I think I will read this one um, and I'll say a couple of things before I read it. So this poem that I will read, which is called Who is God, is actually an assignment in a um, creative preaching class that we were supposed to write like something about who is God. And I ended up writing this poem and I think I had a B (laughs) because I think the professor wanted me to write. So you got a B because the professor wanted you to write. Yes, I got to be because the professor wanted me to write, I think, these bigger kind of universal statements about God. And I didn't do that. Um, so I will read it to you so you will know what I did. And then also I will say um, that this poem explicitly uses the uh, masculine pronouns for God um, because that's, that's, that's where I was. I think I was just still learning and unlearning a lot about the ties between masculinity and um, God. But I kept, I, I, did, I never changed it because one, it was really where I was as a student, as a person, and I was learning and unlearning. So I wanted to honor that space. And two, um, because in many ways for me, looking to God as father was a necessary thing as I and my father were healing our own relationship. And we're like mm-hmm. super great now, but. I think that there was some of that that I needed. And so as a person who explicitly, you know, wants to honor that God has created all genders and that God isn't necessarily connected to a particular gender, I also want to honor my experience and how I made my way through that trajectory. Hmm. So I kept it in masculine programs. Yeah, absolutely. So I will read it and it's called, Who is God? And I won't be looking at you. So hopefully neither one of us freezes. (laughs) Okay, who is God? At age five, he is the best answer for Sunday school questions. At age eight, he is the person you give your life to. Although the lady called him Jesus. At age 13, he is the only one who will listen to what you have to say. At age 16, he is the last word you use when cursing and the first name you call on when you're about to get into trouble. At age 18, he is the voice that consoles a broken heart. And at 20, he is the grace that gives you room to forgive yourself. From 22 to 25, he becomes the reason for your hatred, the basis on which you claim your judgment and the source of your pride. But at 26, you realize he was none of these things. And you wonder if you ever really knew him at all. So at 28, you set out on a journey to find him, like a child obsessed with capturing their parents' shadow. And at 30, you realize that the sun is east, the day is new, and he was right beside you all along. And his shadow constantly propelling you forward into newness. He is the mystery of your life simply because he is the only thing that makes sense. He is your foundation. Whether recently rediscovered or newly found, I cannot say. But he is the only support strong enough for your ambitiously ignorant, insightfully blinded steps that you carelessly choose to take. And although there will be many names that you will call him, and the many years that you continue to discover, he is and always will be 
God. Hmm. And so that was my, obviously semi-autobiographical, maybe she couldn't tell, but I think it was just my own, the only way I knew truly how to articulate God in that assignment was to articulate the ways that I encounter God in my life. Mm -hmm. I can say all of these really big, large things that I believe, but if you ask me who God is, I have to go back to what I've experienced in my body and in my lived experience. Mm. And I can tell you, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, an exercise in theopoetics in and of itself, you know, just like, I don't go to the doctrines. I, I right. go to what I've lived and what I know in my body. Yes, and, and this isn't, you know, this isn't only thing that this is womanist theology, this is Muharista theology, right? This is this is the theologies of the people who are on the margins who lived and who breathed this, right? This is the kitchen table theology, right? This is the Sunday morning with gospel music theology, right? Um, it is the, the day in and day out lives in which people find their faith. The doctrines are should are resonant of a history of that, right? They rise up out of the ways in which we have lived and we go, yeah, that's right. Because of what you experienced and not the other way around, mm, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think we forget that because now we have these codes, we have these things, and then they become the thing that everything is to live by, right? But we're, we're just, you know, we're kind of all guessing here, right? Like right. Jesus came down and gave us a life and we're gonna throw that away for some doctrines, really? Really? <laughs> it's true, I know. The first time, I can't remember if it was during college or after college that it struck me that theology is like philosophy. Like it's pretty clear in philosophy that there is no one right philosophy. Like mm. the meaning of human existence, like how we make sense of the world and our experiences. And to think that theology, has, there's like one right way to believe or to talk about God or to how we define God. Um, and I, I'm brought back to some of those examples. Uh, you know, Thomas Aquinas was one who wrote just mm -hmm. tomes and tomes of like definitions of the scholastic theology. And at the end of his life, when he had this profound mystical experience of God, he wanted to burn it all. He's mm -hmm. like, it's all straw. <laughs> you know, he was like, all of my words do not suffice to speak of this one experience that I've had. You know, he's like, I tried pointing towards it, but. Right. And that's, and that's all that we can do, right? Mm -hmm. That's all we can do. We can try to find ways in which we can faithfully articulate what it is that we are experiencing. This is what the people in the, in the Bible did, right? Mm -hmm. This is their ways of faithfully articulating their encounters with God, right? Yeah. With, you know, a couple of embellishments. But, you know, I mean, that's neither here nor there. So, so it's just. It's what we always do. It's what we will continue to do. Let's just be honest about it. Mm. There's something deeply beautiful about that trajectory. I say even in my own dissertation and you know, some people will be like, you said what? I say, you know, at the end of the day, my dissertation is focused on Octavia Butler. And I go, you know, theology is speculative fiction, mm. right? It's speculating faithfully in community, right? When you think about all of these, the histories of, you know, the creeds and all the stuff. A lot of it was us reacting to arguments or this person said this and we're like, oh, now we got to clear this up and get together and figure out if they, and then we got creeds. And now we follow them faithfully as if God, God's self came down and was like, all right, so this, not that, but this and not, no, it's just faithful speculation and community. Sure. And us holding true to what we still, what is still true for us right now, right? Mm -hmm. And what is still resonant about who we know God to be? Mm -hmm. And what does that mean about how we live in the world? That's all we're doing. Yeah. It's a lot more complicated than that in many ways, but at the end of the day. Sure. But I love that that also respects the, the mystery of God, you know, that God is not something, if God were something that we could contain, I don't think it would be a God worth believing in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So to be able to recognize like there is an ineffability um, in the midst of like that profound closeness, but there's something beautiful and freeing about that when we respect. Yes. And it doesn't mystery. invalidate what we know. Right. Right. 
it doesn't invalidate our encounters. Mm-hmm. It mm-hmm. says yes and. Yes. You know? Yes, absolutely. We will endlessly know <laughs> the divine. <laughs> yeah. Beautiful. Well, as a final question, I'm curious if there is um, either a question or a piece of wisdom you would like to leave with our audience and those who are listening today. Mm. Yes. I've been thinking about this with a couple of people and it just came to my mind. So Um, we talked a lot about like wisdoms and the history of wisdoms and upholding wisdoms. And I talked a lot to friends who often ask the question about like, if you were go back to your younger self, what would you say, you know? Mm -hmm. I have inverted that question because I like to invert questions. And I say, you know, if your younger self can say something to you now, Mm. what would they say? And also who would they be? Who is that younger you, right? Everybody has a different younger you. And the reason that I say that is we often tote wisdom, we pedestal, I'm always like trying to knock down pedestals apparently. Um, We always tote wisdom as like this, this extremely important thing and it is. And so we think that because we have more age and more experience that in the history of our lives, when we go back to our younger selves, we have something in which to tell them Mm. and we don't let them speak and tell us Mm. anything, right? Mm -hmm. And the reason that I say that and the piece of (laughs) wisdom that I will leave is wisdom is extremely valuable and powerful and necessary for us. But the question that I leave and the question that I think our younger selves are asking is what is wisdom without wonder? What is wisdom if all we know is to hold on in rigidity to the wisdom in which we think we've we've received and to lose the wonder that God is there in the first place? Mm. And so my question to all of us and me is to think about what piece of wonder can your younger self give back to you? Mm. Lovely. I love it. Mm-hmm. that's beautiful I'm looking forward to wandering and wondering <laughs> tomorrow yes. <laughs> yes 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 wonderful well thank you so much Tamisha for joining us and for sharing some of your reflections and wisdom about both theopoetics and your own story and your poetry that was lovely as well to be able to experience firsthand um, and see what what theopoetics lived and embodied looks like Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Kelly. It's been an honor. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks everyone too for joining.